I am to speak to you tonight on the theme, Loving the Bible, or the authority of the Bible, now and at the judgment. An analysis of that will reveal three things that need at least some mention. Number one, authority. Number two, loving the Bible. Number three, the Bible at the judgment. I hope that I can discuss this thing tonight in the light of this analysis and impress you with the importance and significance of what is meant by such. By way of definition, the word authority simply suggests the idea of a sovereign power that, that is empowered with the ability to command obedience. There are two kinds of authority. There is inherent authority. From the standpoint of our country here, that authority is vested in the people. Those who hold office in this country, whatever it may be, from the most humble up to the President of the United States, enjoy acting under the authority, inherent authority of the people. What authority officials have is delegated authority. Inherent authority is absolute. Delegated authority is that which has been conferred. Our Lord had, defer, had authority conferred upon him in that marvelous statement of Matthew 28:18, Go teach all nations. As the American Standard Version puts it, Go make disciples of all nations. Having prefaced the statement by saying, All authority hath been given unto me, both in heaven and on earth. I should like for you to observe the comprehensiveness of that statement. First, note the extent of it. In heaven, that means all the authority there is in heaven has been placed in his hand. Secondly, all authority on earth. There is no authority on earth that supersedes or equals his. He occupies the supreme position as the ruler of the universe to whom all people are properly subjected to him. As a matter of fact, authority divides itself into three realms. We have it in our country, as indicated in the legislative and the executive and the judicial. Legislative authority is that power to pass laws for the benefit of the people. Executive power is the administration of that law. And the judicial powers derive from the ability of the courts to pass judgment upon the constitutionality of the laws passed by the Congress of the United States. But our Lord combines all of those powers in himself, all authority, legislative, executive, and judicial are in his hands. And consequently, he is the supreme authority of the universe tonight. He exercised that authority as it has reference to you and to me and to all the world as a result of his having come into the world and having selected those to whom are whom he empowered with responsibility and ability to carry out his will. For example, in the 10th chapter of the book of Matthew, we have the account of the selection of the apostles whom he sent out for the purpose of spreading the news of the coming kingdom. He said to them that in that hour it shall be told you what you shall speak. He said to them, it's not you who speaks, it is the Holy Spirit. This then guaranteed the inerrancy 
and the accuracy of their message and assured that there'd be no error whatsoever in the proclamation of it. Bear in mind that that was further reinforced by the Spirit's power and the inspiration of those who transferred such from men to a book. Bear in mind, please, that originally inspiration was in men, but then ultimately, in order that it might come down through the ages, it was transferred from men to a book. And that book, as it relates to you and to me tonight, is, of course, the New Testament. We're told in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. This is the message of which we're speaking now as delivered by him. And further, in the second chapter of Hebrews, beginning at the first verse, to indicate to us not only the comprehensiveness of it, not only the universality of it, but the total authority involved in it, he said that we are to give heed to the things that we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word which was spoken by angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense or reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which was spoken first by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with boundless signs and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Such then was the nature of the message, such the guarantees about it to assure that it came down to us uncorrupted and with all the power of its original presentation, and such was the method by which it comes to you and to me tonight. For in Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, this wonderful statement, in which he points out how it's transmitted from generation to generation. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, said Paul, the same commit on the faithful man who shall be able to teach others also. A word or two, because I think it's so important in this day when the inerrancy of the Scriptures is questioned, when men doubt the tremendous authority that the book properly has, and when they raise questions regarding its, uh, not only its authority, but its very existence, it seems proper to spend a moment or two in discussing the assurance that we have along that line. To me, one of the greatest passages in the Bible, one that I think is not nearly as familiar to the average member of the church today as it ought to be, and which I hope may focus attention on your part tonight and prompt you to a further investigation of it. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and beginning at verse 8, where Paul makes three points, the design of which was to indicate not only the method but the nature of the message and the guarantee of its correctness. Number one, that we may know the things about God only by divine revelation. Number two, that revelation must be made in word, that is, in human language. And thirdly, that revelation was made through the pens of inspired writers. Now watch his first statement. I hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither is it entered the heart of man, the things the Father hath in store for them that love him. But the next verse says, He has revealed them to us by his Spirit, thus without revelation. It is not possible to know the things of God. Consequently, in God's wisdom, he has made known to us his will, and that will, as we're to see, 
was revealed to us in word. Here are his words. What man knoweth the things of man, save the spirit of man within him? Even so knoweth no man the things of God, save the spirit of God. Now that's a simple illustration. That says simply this. Just as you can't know what I'm thinking at the moment until I reveal it to you by the use of words, in like manner. We can't know what's been in God's mind until he reveals it to us, and that by words. That is simply to say that in the nature of the case, it takes words to, con to constitute a revelation. That a revelation cannot be made except through the medium of words. For example, in Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, David said, The Spirit spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. Note, if you will, a communication between the Spirit and David. Note further that it was made by words, that the communication was couched in language, of course, understandable terms, that enabled David to know what the Spirit was telling him. In 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul said that the Spirit speaketh expressly, that is, plainly and clearly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. What has the Spirit done? He has spoken. How? Plainly and clearly. And in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 11, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So, the revelation came because it was an essential one. It came through the instrumentality of men who, through human language, conveyed God's will to us. Now, the next question, how was it done? Quickly, note the apostle's statement. Which things also we speak? Well, what things? The things of the mind of, of God. Which things we speak? We whom? Paul and, of course, the other, uh, other uh, inspired man. Which things we speak? Speak, mind you, using words. It was thus conveyed in that fashion. Well, how? Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But also, he said, not in words of man's wisdom. That eliminates the human element insofar as the possibility of error is concerned. Not in words of man's wisdom. What if it was not that way, then how was it? Note the next. But in the words of the Holy Spirit. Thus, friends, the guarantee of the inerrancy and the authority and the authenticity of that remarkable document. That's the book that contains the authority of which we're speaking tonight. Now, our next question is this. How do we appropriate it or recognize it and adapt it to our need? Well, first of all, obviously, by the acceptance of it. The Savior said in Matthew 7 and 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father in heaven. And John said in 1 John 2 and 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And that's the wonderfully assuring statement of Revelation 22. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have a right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. Hence, the message was conveyed. We accept it by doing what he said, of course, by believing his word, and by doing what he said. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book. But these were written that you might believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing 
you might have lied through his name. So we appropriate the message by the acceptance of it. And that, of course, without addition, without subtraction, without modification. It is an interesting and informative exercise to note the instances in which we are warned in the sacred writings with reference to any effort to modify or otherwise change that divine revelation. For example, Moses, the first writer of the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 2 wrote, Thou shalt not add unto that which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from that. Who said that? The first writer of the Bible. Turn on through its sacred pages until you come over about the middle. And in Proverbs 36, Solomon said, Add thou not unto his word. We are told further in the last chapter, the last book of the Bible, as if to leave with us a final warning of any tempering therewith. If any man shall add unto the things that are written in this book, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written therein. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away from him his part out of the tree of life and from the things of the holy city. So, friends, our duty and our responsibility and our relationship to that book becomes exceedingly clear. And that is that we must speak where the Bible speaks. We must be silent where the Bible is silent. We must call Bible things by Bible names. We must do Bible things in Bible ways. We must do nothing for which we do not have a thus saith the Lord, or an apostolic example, or a necessary uh, inference. Consequently, any instance in which the Lord has spoken, we may be sure that the reason he so spoke was because it expressed his will in the matter involved. And in those instances where he has not spoken, we may therefore conclude with equal truth that the reason that he did not speak was because it was not a part of his will, and consequently the silence of the Scriptures is just as authoritative and just as binding as where they speak. And when there are men, as there are among us these days, that are now praying about a so-called objection to a law of silence, and who insists that this is not a valid or proper method by which to determine God's will, are trying to substitute human and subjective reasoning and authority for the authority of the Bible. I hope that our people will not fall for this delusion. I hope we will not let Satan seduce us from the will of God by leading us into forbidden paths on the assumption that you can do anything that you want to if the Lord has not prohibited it. That's the message to us tonight from the so-called independent Christian church. And when people try to get us to accept that philosophy. They're trying to lead us away from the acceptance of that which God has given us, and I, for one, will never do it. I hope that our people will recognize the threat and the danger to the peace and harmony of the body of Christ and not be seduced or deceived by it. Let's take a look, please, at what's involved here. Now, we're hearing a good deal these days about a, a hermeneutical principle. What is hermeneutics? Well, it's the study of interpretation, the interpretation of the Bible. But when men today use it in the frame of reference, it generally means do anything you want to do, provided that the Lord has not specifically forbidden it. This is the, this is the philosophy of those who now are trying to establish some form of fellowship between us and the Christian church. May I say to you, friends, it's just as true now as it was when it was penned with a prophet in the long ago. Two can't walk together except they are agreed. There is only one way 
by which there can be unity with those who are guilty of such innovations, and that is by either our giving up our objection to the use of instrumental music in worship, or by their giving up the instrument and by coming to us. They have ridiculed the idea of doing that. Their success, and it is becoming successful in many respects, because they have induced a number of people to accept their view, or at least to weaken their posi our position, and hence no longer to inveigh against these innovations with the power and strength that characterizes in former times. It saddens me that after a hundred years with the greatest men of all the ages who have fought against these matters, that some of us now will turn that around and want to give them what they couldn't take from us in a hundred years with the Scriptures. I submit to you, friends, that those who love the Lord and who respect His cause are not going to accept that philosophy. It matters not where it may originate or by whom advocated, because it's not the truth, it's not the Lord's way, it is a repudiation of His authority. There are two attitudes toward the authority of God, the interpretation of His Word. Number one, it may be illustrated by a little item of history. You remember that back in the early days of our own country, sometimes people call it the early days of the democracy. Ours is not really a democracy, it's a republic. Bear in mind that two great statesmen, uh, one of them uh, Jefferson, the other one Hamilton, differed over the question of whether or not it was proper to have a national bank. Jefferson insisted that it was not constitutional on the ground that the Constitution made no mention whatever of uh, such a bank. Hamilton argued that even though it didn't mention it, that it might be deduced from it, might be implied from it, and hence was therefore constitutional. That's known as the liberal method of interpretation, whereas Jefferson's viewpoint is sometimes called the strict method of interpretation. That's exactly the difference that exists tonight between us and the independent Christian church. That is, how do we interpret the scriptures? Either strictly or loosely. Do we insist that we must go by what they say without addition, without subtraction, without modification? Or are we at liberty to do anything which the Bible does not specifically forbid? The Old Testament abounds with examples showing the falsity of that method of approach. Nonetheless, it is a very popular one. We saw it demonstrated in the hearings in Washington not long ago. In the rejection of uh, Judge Bork, one of the truly great jurists of all time, was rejected on the ground, the allegation, that he thought that the Constitution did not specifically involve certain matters. He did not question the proper are the propriety of such matters. He simply questioned whether or not they might be deduced from the Constitution. His argument was that the Congress of the United States should pass laws respecting the matters involved and not let men subjectively determine what the Constitution says. Now, that's exactly the principle that's involved tonight in the question of whether or not we let the Bible speak and where it is not speaking to remain silent where it is not speaking are whether or not we move away from it and decide that we are free to substitute human reasoning for the divine and do anything that the Lord has not specifically prohibited. Where do we stop with that? This will lead people into any area of activity that is not specifically dealt with. But how would you tell somebody that it's wrong to gamble? The word gamble is not found in the Bible in that connection. How would you teach somebody that's wrong to use cocaine or marijuana? Those words are not in the Bible. Now, if you're going to operate solely on the basis and on the premise uh, along that line, then when men attempt to substitute human judgment for the divine, 
then of course they're in error. Bear in mind that those practices are condemned in principle and therefore wrong. But then we're not at liberty to do anything that the Bible does not specifically forbid. Now I've shown you tonight by way of analysis what authority is. I've discussed in some detail the manner in which our Lord exercised it, and I have shown you further how to recognize it. Now I want to talk a little bit before the time runs out on how men today are minimizing that authority. In the first place, they're doing it by denying what the book teaches. It remained for our day to see people boldly and clearly den uh, denounce statements in the Bible that are so clear and plain that it seems to me that any person with an ordinary intelligence would have no problem with them. For example, on the subject of marriage and divorce and remarriage, undoubtedly there are those who think there must be something difficult about that, and yet look at what the Lord said. Matthew 19, 9, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery. Well, what does it mean? It means that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery. Well, explain it. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and marries another, commits adultery. Well, friends, that doesn't need explaining. It just needs believing. It just needs accepting. We preach that we must do what the Bible says, without addition, without subtraction, without modification. Why turn right around then and insist that you can deny what it teaches and still enjoy the approval and approbation of God? I do not believe a word of it. I reject that philosophy entirely. I want to go to heaven, and I can't get there if I deny what the Lord said, and neither can you. And I hope, therefore, that you recognize the vital significance of these matters. Further, there is a tendency today to compromise the truth on the basis of which we one time stood. Our Lord said, Every plant that my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Well, what did he mean by that? He wasn't talking about horticulture. He wasn't giving a lesson in how to operate your farm effectively or industriously. He was using that as a figure of speech to indicate that any effort of man must be rooted up if the soil is to be properly tended for the Lord's plants to grow properly. And may I say that the meaning of that is all so clear. And yet, we have brethren all over the country that are chasing around among denominational churches, showing them how to evangelize most more effectively. This is not rooting them up. This is uh, cultivating them and watering them so that they'll grow higher and become more uh, effective in their work. This is foreign to what this school has stood for through the years. This is, far, this is foreign to what gospel preachers have stood for through the years. How much more of this can we tolerate, friends, over the brotherhood when we are being led away and are teaching perilously on the very verge of apostasy, at least where there is not the disposition to speak out on these matters, and in many instances they are muted. A third area that I must mention quickly is the adulteration of the Word of God through the interjection into our translations of matters foreign to the teaching. May I say to you this? I have been a student of the Greek text almost daily for more than 50 years. Hardly a day passes that I do not have occasion to look into the grammar of the New Testament or the New Testament itself, or the Greek New Testament. To my certain knowledge, 
the American Standard Version more nearly reflects the meaning of the Greek text than any other we have. But having said that, I want to add this. It's my confirmed conviction that a person that hasn't got anything in his house except the King James Testament can learn from it all that God intends for him to know and go to heaven by it. And when some so-called intellectual stands up and ridicules a translation that will be responsible for the populating of heaven more than all the rest of them put together, it stirs me no little. I am wholly uninfluenced by the fact that some fellow has had three years under some modernistic infidel theologian and claims then to be a scholar in the Greek text. I reject that without hesitation. Further, another thing I want to speak about. And that is, I'm amazed and alarmed at a tendency of some of the most conservative brethren among us today. These lectureships that we're having all over the country now, I notice this, they're filling their books with quotations from denominational preachers. Would you invite one of them in? Well, you might say, but it's all right to use them if you're exposing them. That's the use that I usually put them to. I never quote a denominational preacher anymore unless I'm quoting him for the purpose of showing his error, or at least to establish in connection with the statement what the truth is in contrast. But our brethren are filling these books with quotations from denominational preachers, most of whom do not even believe in the basic fundamental principles of New Testament Christianity. Barclay, for example, is virtually a modernistic uh, uh, scholar who doubts seriously many of the fundamental and basic truths of the Bible. Take C.S. Lewis, for example, that occurs, quotation from him occurs repeatedly. Lewis has led many, many people into the Catholic Church, though he himself never joined it. Yet his teaching and his writing has led many people into it.